Father, today we proclaim that you're the highest and you're the greatest. That there's no one like you or above you. And all those things are true, Lord. You yourself have said that. The angels surrounding you in heaven every day proclaim that. History reminds us of that. Your word is powerful in that. But Lord, I I just pray this morning that those might not be words that we are just satisfied in in singing in the song. I pray, Lord, that those might be words that we are willing to put into action. To recognize, Father, that you are the greatest. That you have a right to be the number one priority in everything that we say and do. Lord, it's hard for us sometimes because we we're human and we have our own plans and our own dreams and our own agendas. We have our own hang-ups and hurts. We have the things that we cling to. Lord, help us to be willing to lay those aside for something greater. Father, we thank you for your word that is a challenge to us. It's a reminder. It's a conscience to us. God, I just pray today as we open your word that you might open our hearts to what it is that you're, you're saying to us through this word. As we look at the stories and as we watch your son live his life on this earth, I just pray, Lord, that we might be able to make those connections to where we live and how we live. And that, Lord, we might be changed today. We just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The last few weeks, we've been taking a look at at a series that we're calling Headspace. We've just been taking a look at how much our mind, our heart, really impacts who we are and how we live. There's a lot of things that really kind of go into making us who we are, but, but science is proving what the Bible has long said, that so much of who we are happens, happens in how we think about ourselves and we think about life, how we approach the challenges that life throws at us as well as those moments of, of happiness and joy. So often we, we kind of get shuffled into this idea that either we are just a product of the brain that we were born with, and so we have to just kind of shuffle through life dealing with this particular set of challenges, or we, we think that we've been dealt a, a divine hand by God, that God said, this is your cards that you will play, and, and, and our life is completely laid out on either one of those. And, and, and really, I think both of those miss a really big truth. Certainly, we are all born with the brain that we were born with, right? But our minds can change. And certainly, God allows for circumstances and situations to come into our life, but it's always our choice as to how we will deal with those things. Are we going to embrace those opportunities and those challenges using the tools that God has given us? Or are we going to attempt to cobble together a set of our own tools that maybe we've borrowed from future generations or past generations, or maybe we've read in a book somewhere, or we've come up with on our own, we'll use those tools to deal with these overwhelming challenges of life. And time and time again, the Bible reminds us of two things that I never want us to forget. Number one, God says that your mind can be changed, that we are to be renewed in our thinking renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit, renewed by the working of the Word of God in our hearts and in our lives. And number two, that we get to choose. 
From the very beginning, God has laid out the opportunity for us to choose. Joshua said it may be the best when he is retiring from leadership of the people of Israel. And he says to them, you have a choice. You can serve the God that led you from the land of Egypt and helped you cross over the the, the waters and conquer this land. A God that caused walls of cities to collapse and strong enemy nations to melt before you. You can choose to serve that God. Or you can choose to serve the God's of the people in whose land you now live. But as for me and my house, we will choose to serve the Lord. Joshua realized what I realized this morning, and all of us know that that while I can choose for myself and while my kids are kind of under my roof, I I can kind of push them in a particular direction. The truth is, is that all of us, all of us in this room this morning have the personal responsibility to make that choice on our own. It's a choice that we have to make and a choice that the implications of that choice not only last in this life, which is important, But the Bible says that the result of those choices last with us for eternity. This morning, we're going to continue a couple more messages in this series, and we're simply going to talk about something this morning that I think is a really needed thing. None of this that I'm going to share with you this morning will be new to you, and certainly probably none of what I share with you this morning will surprise any of us, but... I think the things that I share with us this morning are things that I need, and maybe they're things that you need. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me this morning to Genesis, the second chapter, as we begin to talk about this particular subject that science today is more and more recognizing is absolutely critical. And in fact, if you you want to nerd out on this stuff, if you're like me once in a while and you get interested and you want to kind of suck in on some of this, there is no shortage of information that you can quickly Google. Um, Don't do it while I'm preaching. Well, go ahead. I I mean, whatever. It's not going to do any good for me to tell you not to, right? Because you're going to be like, I'm on the Bible. Not really. Um, but, uh, but you can Google it. I mean, you can find a ton of information about this subject. More and more, we recognize the importance of this thing. And we should have recognized it all along. Last year, we had an opportunity to go to Israel and, and do a trip and tour there. And it was, it was amazing. And one of the things that I'll never forget was we, we got in Jerusalem on Friday afternoon. And, and for me, that was kind of a, a cool moment because I had grown up watching my grandfather's slideshows. I've shared that with you guys before. And, uh, and uh, there was this particular song. There's two songs that my grandpa liked. Um, and I don't know why my grandpa liked these two songs. One of them was The Wreck of the Evan Fitzgerald, all right, by... Uh, by uh, uh, Anyway, uh, we'll think of it later. Uh, a, a Canadian guy, that, a singer-songwriter. Anyway, Lightfoot, Gordon Lightfoot. There we go. It came out of my musty brain. Um, and the second song he liked was, was the, 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 the song about the holy city, Jerusalem. You guys know that one? I, I could sing it to you, but it would hurt all of your feelings after Alicia did such a beautiful job. It goes, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Never mind. All right, you're going to get me going. Uh, and uh, that afternoon, we enrolled into Jerusalem, and they had played this song on the bus. And, and one of the only moments, I'm not an emotional person, but I just about went into tears uh, because I was thinking of my family. And it's kind of a cool moment. You know, you kind of come around this corner, and here's this, this, this city that, that you grew up seeing in the back of your Bible, and here it is, right in real life. And then that evening, um, they said, we're going to have to turn in ease early this evening because it's preparation for Sabbath. We call it Sabbath. And, uh, and, and that evening, there was a really light meal at the hotel. Normally, we had great food, but there were just kind of quick 
service kinds of foods. And the next day was the Sabbath. And I just noticed as a culture, now these are not people that are, that are God-fearing particularly. It's a pretty secular culture in Israel. But, but culturally, they have adapted something that we have forsaken. The world pretty much shuts down in Israel on the Sabbath. And they do that because in Genesis, the second chapter, God has spent the last seven days creating, or six days, creating this thing that we call earth and the world and everything in it. It's a fascinating process. We have no idea how he did it or what really happened right there. It's not important. God said, I did it. I spoke it into existence. Go on. It's my business, not yours, right? Us scientists want to know how, how, how. Someday we might get to know. This we can understand. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day. He made it holy because on it, God rested from all the work he had done in creation. Now, it's kind of a Hebrew form of poetry here this morning. You kind of recognize that. He's repeating themes right here over and over again. But we get it. On the seventh day, God rested. Now, it's not like, it's not like God was really tired, right? We just got done finishing singing a song about the greatness of God and the expansiveness and nature of God. God is all-powerful and God is all-knowing. There's no limits to him. He's not finite. We are. He's not. He is great. He is mighty. He is powerful. And then he finishes this creation process and he takes a break. And my question is, what did God go do on the eighth day or the first day again? I don't know. It's not important because... I have an idea that God did not rest on the seventh day because he was tired. God didn't rest on the seventh day because he had somehow exhausted his energy reserves. And so he's like, boy, I just need to take a day off right here. God is resting on the seventh day not for himself, but for us. As Americans, we have never been good at resting. It's not one of our great strengths, certainly not in the current generation. According to a, a recent study I, I read, and, and there's probably different numbers, but of, of normal American adults, only 14% have set aside an entire day for the purpose of rest. And what's interesting is, of those people that are surveyed and they're asked, you know, um, who said, yeah, I, I set aside a day for rest, they ask them how they fill their time on that day. Well, what do you do? You know, you got a whole day of your week that you're resting. This is what I thought was funny. 40% say they do enjoyable work. 37% say they do not enjoyable work. So I'm not really good at math, but uh, I think that's 77% of the people, of the 14% of the people who say they set a day apart from work actually spend their day working, right? Somebody's lying right there. I'm just saying, okay? Only 14% who set aside a day of rest, and only 19% say that they won't work at all on the day of rest. So uh, you, you get that right there. You think about it. You're like, wow, we are not people who understand rest. But I think we are a culture of people who chronically, who understand chronically overworking. I, you, you do this. I do this all the time. Probably some of you have come up and said this to me, but I, I've been more intentional the last few weeks in listening to the responses. When I go up to people, I was like, hey, how you been? What is the number one response that people give us when you go up and say, hey, how you been doing? Good. 
And then you ask that following question. You kind of, kind of want them to talk a little bit more about what's going on. Typically, sometime in the next minute, they're going to say what? We've been busy. We, oh, man, we're good, but man, we've been busy. I mean, you wouldn't believe all this stuff. Oh, the kids are keeping us busy. You know, the, the retired people are like the grandkids are keeping us busy. Some people are honest and are like, I don't even know what's keeping me busy. <laughs> I'm just saying busy. Busy seems to be the buzzword of most of us in the world today. We're, we're busy. We're chronically overworked as a people. I think sometimes we feel, we know that it's bad for us, but we somehow feel compelled to keep up with this frantic pace of life. After all, it's how we put food on the table. And more than that, our work provides the source of our identity. And since our work is our source of identity, we're oftentimes constantly striving to prove ourselves. But striving never ends. And a lot of us today have been conditioned to be efficient people. I grew up in a family that had a very, very strong work ethic. <laughs> I can share those stories with you. It's not important today, but I can just tell you that, that, that both on both sides of my family, both with the quarters and with the, with the urns my mom's side of the family, these were hardworking people. My granddad was planting a garden when he was walking with two canes because his knees were broken. People say, why did you plant in a garden? He said, because I'm supposed to. <laughs> Didn't even know why. He was out working, but he was going to do that. Lean on the tiller, going through the garden. That was my grandpa. We, but we, <laughs> we're kind of a little bit like, well, kind of like the people who drove the first automobiles. So Henry Ford, when he invented the first automobile, Henry knew that it had to be a fairly economical device. There were a lot of fancier cars that were in Europe, but they just weren't gaining traction in the United States because most American people were frugal and didn't have a lot of expendable income. And so Mr. Ford did a couple things. He mass-produced the cars rather than one-off making them. But he also cut corners where he could. If you've ever seen an old Model T Ford, they have one in the... In the, in the um, City offices uptown, if you've never seen one, it's kind of cool. They used to build them there, incidentally. But, uh, but, but you can see, this is a pretty stripped-down vehicle. I mean, <laughs> there's not a whole lot of fancies. If you see European vehicles from the same era up against that American Model T Ford, you're like, wow, this thing is crude. It's kind of like a Jeep. But one of the things that, that Ford decided to leave off of the Model T Ford was a gas gauge. And it's, it's notorious. Even today, if you go on, you go on Ford forums, um, they, they, they all have pictures of their gas measure, measuring sticks, all right? Um, if you grew up on a farm where, like I did, my granddad's, when the gas gauge went out of the tractor, we didn't worry about that. We just dropped the stick in the tank right there to see. And, and Pete, everyone had one. They'd get out in the morning, they'd take the top off the gas, they would stick it in there to see how much fuel they had because notoriously, people were left on the side of the roads without fuel. They didn't have a gauge about how much reserve energy they had left. So how do we know as human beings when we are running on empty and we need a refill? You know, sometimes that message comes at a point in time, guys, where it's a little late, where we're, we're having a, a mental breakdown or a marriage breakdown or a parenting breakdown when we're literally on the side of the road and things are literally about to fall apart, it's at that moment that we realize, I've been running on empty for a very, very, very long time. Guys, I don't believe that we burn out doing the right things in life, but I think all of us can burn out. And I think we burn out not because of what we're doing, but because of what we're not doing. 
Listen, if God feels, felt like it was so important that he rest or set us an example of rest, that he, he sets an entire day of creation and says this is a day of rest, if God felt it was so important that when he delivered to Moses the Ten Commandments, among those Ten Commandments was one that said, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, set it apart. If God thinks it's so important to rest, maybe this morning we should just stop and and think about that ourselves. Where is rest? Where is spiritual replenishment on my list of priorities? We've been noticing through this whole series that, that there was a big difference between Jesus and the followers of Jesus, right? So the, Jesus finishes the most grueling and difficult course of life. It was emotionally, it was physically, uh, it was in every way absolutely exhausting. And yet Jesus finishes this, and he finishes it well. He's able to say, hanging from the cross, it is done, it is finished. I have done what I set out to do. The apostles, on the other hand, they didn't have near the burden that Jesus did. They didn't have near the, near the strain emotionally or physically that Jesus would. And yet they all spectacularly failed in a number of different ways. The difference was that Jesus didn't burn out because he was full. The disciples burned out because they had not taken time to fill up. They burned out because they didn't have the fuel to continue going. I think Jesus shows us really three areas in his ministry where he rested. And we're going to talk about those this morning. The first one is spiritual rest. The second one is physical rest. And the third one is mental rest. And we're going to kind of look at the life of Jesus and lay these out. So let's just start from the very top of that list. What does it mean when we say that Jesus understood spiritual rest? And some of us look at that and we're like, I don't even know what, what you're talking about. And, and that's, that's understandable. Jesus Jesus wants us to be people that are spiritually at rest. So often in life, we feel like we're a lot like the people that Jesus saw in Jerusalem. He said that they're harassed and they're helpless. They're running around like sheep without a shepherd. They don't know where they're going or what they're doing. If you want an instance of this, in my opinion, um, you can just look at the kind of current thing that's happening culturally today with the coronavirus, right? How many of you are aware that there's a a virus by the name of the coronavirus? How many of you are not aware that there's a virus called the coronavirus? Okay, just one of you. All right, good. Um, We're all in equal shape. Don't worry about it. Uh, but, uh, but we know about that, right? Now, we all know, we're all looking at that, and we're like, why is everyone so worked up about this, right? And of course, it's a, it's a scary thing anytime there's a disease, and I'm not minimizing the, the cost of life in any way, but, but, but there are people that are dying every moment, right? There are people dying of the flu all over the world. But, but as people, we, we're constantly looking at our world, and we're realizing something. There are so many facets of life that we are simply not in control of. And and there's so many people that I talk to, maybe people that you know, people that I I listen to blogs of and and, and read articles from that lay awake at night, worried about things that are going on in the world, concerned about both their family and their finances, about their children, about their communities, about their country, consumed with worry and agony and anxiety. Jesus would say things like, let not your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me in John, the 14th chapter. Don't worry about it, guys. It's all good. How, does, how do we get to that place? What all really comes down to our relationship with Jesus, 
I think why our country is increasingly harassed and helpless is that with each increasing generation, we, we lose our connection with Christ. Whether or not you like that, you, you have to recognize that our country was a nation, one nation under God, right? We were created on a, on, a, on a biblical principle. And for generations, people had this understanding that God was in control and was present. Many people had a relationship with God. Now, it might not have been a first-hand relationship. It might have been a second or a third-hand relationship. But they had an idea that there was a God that was caring for them. So how do we get to that place this morning? How do we get to the place of spiritual rest? I think there's four attitudes towards Jesus that really influence this decision. And the first one is simply this. We need to recognize that Christ is our righteousness. If you were in class this morning in Sunday school, Mr. Jody, in fact, talked about this, and we didn't even compare notes, but he, he used a great word. He said that Christ is our propitiation, all right? That just simply means that Christ is our covering, and, and, and here's why that's important. We spend our lives, some of us, and this is not all of us this morning, but many of us have spent our lives trying to justify ourselves, to diminish our faults, and to exaggerate our virtues. Don't believe me, just... Just go on social media and watch how people present themselves. We feel guilty. We feel unimportant. We feel naked and exposed. And so we cover ourselves with things like titles and personas and accomplishments and degrees. And we, we, we look to these things to try to make us feel sufficient. But this problem is as old as Adam and Eve. You might remember that in the garden before sin entered the world, Adam and Eve were just kind of hanging out there. It was this wonderful place. We don't know how long that lasted, but everything was wonderful. God would come down, have visitations with them, and it was, the world was like it's supposed to be. Everyone was at peace and at rest. And Satan entered into this sanctuary of peace and rest and, and broke it with lies and, and Eve was deceived, and Adam willingly jumped into this. And, and you might remember that the first thing that they recognized, it says that they recognized that they were naked, and they went and they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves, those poor people. Um, uh, if you've ever been in a fig tree, you know what I mean. Um, but they tried to cover themselves in fig leaves, and, and when God comes down, God's like, why are you hiding? What's the problem here? Where are my innocent Adam and Eve? And of course, they said, well, uh, we're naked. And he said, how do you know you're naked? And of course, the ruse was up, and their sin found them out, as it always does. Guys, the beauty of the gospel is simply this. It destroys our faulty justifications that we used to cover ourselves. And in its place, the gospel offers Christ's righteousness as a gift. I hope that none of us here this morning don't know this, but just in case we don't, I've got to point this out. The thing that we get in, in, in Christianity, the thing that we love about God is that God doesn't just offer us to be a part of a family or to jump into a club. He doesn't just give us an opportunity to walk away from past failures and, and try to do our very best in the future. He gives us an imputed righteousness, to use a fancy term. In other words, he covers us with Jesus. And so, so we no longer have to go about trying to make up for our weaknesses we simply have the opportunity to go forward in God's strength, covered by him, clothed in his righteousness. We regain the love and the acceptance that we've always craved and we all lost from our heavenly father. Because he is our righteousness, we are at peace with God and with ourselves. 
You might remember the ending part of the story there in Genesis is Adam and Eve sin. It says that God, God made for them garments. God didn't, wasn't satisfied to let them go out into the world and try to figure out how to cover themselves. He made for them physical clothes out of an animal skin. He put it on them and he said, here, here's something to cover yourselves because I can't stand to see you this way. But someday, someday I'm going to send my son and my son's not going to cover you with the skin of an animal. The blood of an animal is not that thing that's going to cover you. My son is going to cover you with his own righteousness. His own blood will cover and compensate for the failures that you have made in our life. Second Corinthians 5th chapter says it so much better than I can. Paul writes this. He said, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus took our sin. Jesus took Jason's sin upon himself so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Let me just take a moment to reread that to you this morning, that we might become the righteousness of God not that we might, we might notice it or that we might someday get there. That's not what Jesus died on the cross to do. Jesus died on the cross that when, when our sins are washed away in the waters of baptism, when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that we become righteous, not because we're good, but that we have given, given the righteousness from Jesus. So number one, we enter into spiritual rest when we deal with our sin, and we deal with our sin by allowing Christ to be our righteousness. Number two, we allow Christ to be our identity. We can never really find rest and peace in life, guys, if we are constantly looking for our identity in the things in this world, things like our work, our talents, our abilities, our popularity on the totem pole of social popularity. Many of us in this room this morning have spent our entire lives trying to prove our value to the world. And it's true, we all need to have a value and we need to do something. I, I always, I love old movies some and I, I like Rocky movies especially. How, how many of you are Rocky fans here this morning? All right. Once again, those older of us right here, right? If you grew up watching that, I remember the first Rocky movie I watched. And there's a great quote in a Rocky movie. Um, Rocky, when he asked, he's asked, why do you fight? And he says this, he said, if that bell rings and I'm still standing... I'm going to know for the first time in my life, see, that I weren't just another bum from the neighborhood. Rocky was fighting because he wanted to prove that he wasn't just another loss from the place where he grew up. He wanted to prove that he was something, that he could do something. And I think a lot of us understand that. He was fighting for value. He was fighting to prove to the world that he was something. And so do we. We're a little bit like Rocky. We dream of graduating, valedictorian of our class, or we dream of getting married and having two and a half perfect kids. We dream of making six figures because we want to prove that we're not bums, right? We want to prove that we're worth something. We want to prove our value to the world. And guys, I think the thing that's true is all of us are spending our lives proving to ourselves and trying to establish an identity and it's absolutely exhausting. And the exhausting part about it is, is that sometimes you don't have two and a half perfect kids. And sometimes you don't graduate the valedictorian of your class. And sometimes you don't get the six-figure job that gives you all the fulfillment you ever wanted. And you end up, you end up broken and burnt out. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ speaks differently. It reminds us that we are held in the highest regard by the highest being. Guys, if God is in your corner this morning, there is nothing else more you need. 
If, if, if he loves us as much as he does, who cares about the rest of the world? John, the 15th chapter and verse 15, uh, this is a beautiful passage. Jesus said, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for anything that I've learned from my father, I've been made known to you. The third thing is that Christ is our security. One of the hardest lessons that we've learned in life is that we are not in control of almost anything, certainly not everything. And we can't provide for every contingency, not even for ourselves, and certainly not for our families and for our greater extended group of friends and relatives. In short, we're not God. And we're tremendously stressed because we carry about a burden of of trying to be a security that God never really intended for us to be carrying in the first place. And so we never take days off. We never take a vacation. And even if we do, we keep thinking about the things that we should be doing and concerned about things that we really don't have any control of. And the gospel reminds us that our security lies in God's hands, not in our own. If we understand that the Lord builds a house and it's the Lord that watches the city, that's a, that's a psalm, Psalm 127. It's a beautiful psalm. If, you, if you're concerned about life, it's one that you should read through and memorize. Psalms 127 it says, unless God builds a house, unless God watches the city, you're doing it in vain. You're not, you, there's always something that's going to break. There's something that's going to fail. The fourth thing that gives us spiritual rest is that we recognize Christ as our priority. I could say a lot about this, but I'm not going to this morning. Just simply, we, we, we mention this passage so often, but Matthew, the sixth chapter, verse 33, it simply says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Guys, if we do those four things in our life, we're going to find that we're at a place of spiritual rest far more than what we oftentimes find ourselves in. But it's also important to recognize that Jesus was not just in spiritual rest, and he was. He was completely at rest with the Father. There was no breaking of that relationship. In fact, Jesus said, as as you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We're one. But there's also an element of physical rest in the life of, of Jesus that is modeled in so many different ways. Our lives get so cluttered up with all the things that we should do that sometimes we don't have time to actually step back and just take a deep breath and physically relax. Let me ask you this this morning. When was the last time you just allowed yourself to relax, to physically rest? Some of us are good at this. I'm not preaching to you this morning. Some of us aren't. I'm preaching to myself, and maybe you're a little bit like me. You know that one of my favorite stories is Mark, the fourth chapter, verses 34, 35 through 40. It's that moment when Jesus um, and his disciples uh, are going to the other side of the lake, and they left behind a big, big crowd. Let me just read it quickly. It says, leaving the crowd behind, they, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him, and a furious squall came up on the Sea of Galilee, and it broke over the boat so that they were nearly swamped, but Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. You might, might look at this, and, and some part of this story might kind of hit you weird. So here's the disciples, and Jesus is like, hey guys, it's time to check out for the day. And the thing I love about this story is that, well, there's a lot of things. One thing is, is that Jesus sees that there's a crowd and that there's work to be done, He knows that there's people that need to be healed, there's demons that need to be cast out, there's lessons that need to be taught, there's sermons that need to be preached. 
But he tells his disciples, hey, guys, it's, it's time for us to rest. Get in the boat. Let's go to the other side. And then promptly, Jesus finds a cushion somewhere in the bottom of that boat, curls up on it, and goes to sleep. It's kind of weird for us sometimes. You know, I, this story became one of my favorite stories in around 2005. It's one of the most difficult periods in my life. Don't have time to talk to you about it this morning, maybe another day. But I'll just tell you that there were, there were health concerns, people that I loved that were completely out of my control, and they were huge. There were family members that were dying. I had financial problems that were much, much bigger than I, I would have ever imagined that really weren't a result completely of my own fault. There was a huge storm, as you might remember, that devastated South Louisiana, and so there was a huge um, a relief effort that was coordinated out of the church here. Every single day, we were helping people who literally came to us and said, I don't have anything, and they weren't lying. They didn't have anything left in the world. There, there, was, there were burdens everywhere in my life at that season, and I, I looked at the mirror, and I realized I was burning out. I was trying to build a house in the midst of all this foolishness. There was a lot a lot going on. It's that moment in my life when this story made the biggest difference for me. They're in a boat that's about to sink. Jesus is in the stern sleeping. The disciples wake him and they said, teacher, don't you care if we drown? We are going down. Right? And he got up and he rebukes the wind and he says, quiet, be still. Hush, peace, be still. And the entirety of the creation around them followed suit. It said it was completely calm. And then he said to the disciples, why are you guys so afraid? Do you still have no faith? The reason that Jesus was asleep on that cushion, the reason that Jesus was able to really physically rest we, because Jesus completely trusted that the Father had things under control. Brothers and sisters, this morning, I, I'm not preaching to you as somebody who is good at this. I'm not. But let me just tell you, some of us have a faith crisis. And we were asked, do you believe that God is, is faithful? We would answer that with an absolute affirmative. But the way that we're working on the inside, the way that we're mentally dealing with the challenges of life, maybe says a little bit different story about us. Maybe Jesus' response to the disciples is an appropriate response to Jason and to you. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? The disciples are going to be blown away by this. You know the passage. They said, who is this that even the winds and waves obey him? Let me tell you who he is. He's the creator of the universe. There is nothing that escapes his notice. So that leads us to the last thing quickly as we close this morning. We're going to close with this. The last of the three things that Jesus modeled for us was mental rest. What does it mean to really mentally rest? There's this beautiful passage in Mark, the first chapter, verse 35. It simply says, in rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and he went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. Some people have described this as Jesus' war room, Jesus' prayer room. He would go out into the wilderness areas. He would find some place quiet and alone, and there he would go to God, and he would establish that contact that kept him going and filled throughout the day. 
After ministering to others, after pouring himself out again and again to those who needed him, Jesus would often leave and spend time with God. And this is a pattern that's repeated throughout the entirety of the New Testament. In fact, the very night that Jesus is broken in the garden, as Jesus is pouring out his heart and soul to God, he, he comes to the disciples who he is asked to do this with him. He's asked them to put themselves in a place of mental rest, to go to God and to pray and to turn things over to God. And you might remember the story. You all do because you're good Bible students, right? He shows up to Peter, James, and John, his three closest buddies in the world, and they are what? Sleeping. They're physically resting, but they haven't prioritized what Jesus is calling mental rest. And he says to them, watch and pray. Because your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. If we don't spend that time mentally, or what sometimes modern brain scientists call focused rest, where we, where we just set aside and we say, Lord, I'm just going to think about things. I'm going to contemplate your word. I'm going to pray and ask you to be the leader of my life. I'm going to meditate it's something we don't do a lot. We're not talking about sitting around emptying our mind and going, oh, we're talking about taking the things that maybe some things that we've read this morning, the concept of rest, sitting down and saying, how does this affect me? Am I a person that rests? Am I a person that's at rest? Am I, am I spiritually at rest with God or am I fighting a spiritual battle because I know that I really haven't taken care of the sin stuff in my life? Am I a, am I a person that values physical rest or am I sleeping four hours a night or two hours a night? rolling because I think I've got to. Am I a person that's mentally at rest? Mark the sixth chapter later on in Jesus' ministry, the apostles have been sent out to go and preach the message of the gospel to the world, the 72, and they returned to Jesus and they told him all that they had done and that they taught. They've come back from this awesome, this awesome mission trip. And you should know that in the midst of this, John the Baptist has been beheaded. This is, a, this is a heartbreaking time for Jesus. And notice what Jesus says. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now, if you know the story, you know that when they got there, there were crowds that were gathered. Jesus did what had to be done, but his intention was, disciples, I'm glad you're on cloud nine. I'm glad that you guys have come back and had an amazing mission trip. I'm brokenhearted because my cousin, my forerunner, has just paid the ultimate price for defending faith. But we both, whether we're on the mountaintop we're in the deepest valley. Need the same thing at this moment. We need to go and rest. We need to mentally refocus. Because Jesus knew that when he and the disciples were physically and mentally exhausted, too busy to even attend to their own physical needs, that if they stayed there very long, they were going to break. Remember what passage we started with a few weeks ago in Matthew 11? Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, or you, and learn from me, for I am gentle, I am lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. 
So often we look at the life of Jesus for inspiration and how to deal with so many things. Maybe it's time that we look at the life of Jesus for inspiration on how to be at rest. Rest spiritually with the Father, covered with his righteousness. At rest in our physical bodies, recognizing that we are not infinite. We have real limitations, and sometimes we just need to hang it up and rest our physical bodies and rest in our minds mentally focused on God and his goodness. We're going to stand together and we're going to sing this morning. And if anybody has a need, you know that there's always an opportunity to come forward if you want and say, church family, I need you to pray and circle me in prayer. We'd be happy to do that. Maybe you just want to catch one of the elders or myself or uh, one of us after church, someone on the pew with you and say, hey, just sit down for a second. Let's talk about something. Do that before you leave today. Let's sing together.